not everyone gets to see this every day. It's like a real cool office to work in. Um, no one gets to see glow rooms every day, so I think it's just something special, like something different. Yeah. yeah I- Welcome to a very special edition of the Adventures in Learning podcast. I'm currently traveling in New Zealand, and today I have a very special episode for you. We are going to learn all about glowworms, and we're going to learn about them from two incredible young men whose enthusiasm for them is, um, it matches mine. So tune in, listen, and I hope you're going to absolutely enjoy everything that Ruben and Xavier have to say. And if you're ever in New Zealand, definitely check out the Rua Curry Cave Tour and um, Blackwater Rafting Company. All right, without further ado, let's listen. Wonder, curiosity, connection. Where will your adventures take you? I'm Dr. Diane, and thank you for joining me on today's episode of Adventures in Learning. Well, let's let's learn about them. So I'll just, I'll just give you the whole life cycle, I guess. That'd be great. Yep. So, so the stage we're there in now is called the larvae stage or the hunting stage. And they're in the stage for around nine to ten months. And what they do in the stage is they hang down lines, ten to twenty. This is their fishing lines, how they catch food. And their food comes in from the river. So just any waterborne insects like midges, mayflies, mosquitoes come through the river. They hatch in the river, and they go up to the only light source they can see, which is the glowworms, and they get caught in the fishing lines. And the fishing lines are made out of urine and snot, and they just reel them up and eat them up. So in that nine to ten months, they catch about four to five insects, which are not very, not too much, but they're quite energy efficient as they are. So they don't need much food. And after that t- nine to ten months, they go into a pupa or a cocoon stage for about two weeks. And after that two weeks, they hatch out and they become a big fly or mosquito. But they got one problem, they were born without a mouth. So they only have three to five days to live. So the only, the only thing they can do is reproduce. And that's the sole purpose as an adult fly is to reproduce. So they find a lovely life, go on a honeymoon, and mate for around 24 hours straight until the male dies of exhaustion. <coughs> Yep, and then the female is left by herself to lay around 200 eggs in groups of 10 to 20. And the reason for the groups of 10 to 20 is after the female lays all the eggs, she also dies of exhaustion. So there's no one to feed the glowworms. So the firstborn gets to eat the brothers and sisters. Oh, wow. And then the life cycle continues. So life cycle of the glowworms is about a year long, just under. So, yeah. And so they use bioluminescence yep, to... for the glow. Yeah, and it's just how that it's like a chemical reaction from the food they eat, the proteins and they have in their body. And they're actually not worms, correct? Yeah, so they in the larvae stage that they're in right now, they're closely more related to a maggot. So it's a glow maggot when you're looking at right now. But it's not very appealing to, <laughs> to the tourists, so that's why they call it glow worms. And this is what part of their body is going as well. <laughs> and this is the yeah. only yeah. place in the world you can find them, is that right? Uh, no, there's a couple places in Australia where it has glowworms, different species. Uh, America, they don't have glowworms on people, it's fireflies. Right, we have yeah. fireflies. Yeah, fireflies, and maybe some places in Europe. Yeah. So as we were taken through the caves, our guides stopped and they showed us the most beautiful um, feeder strands that the glowworms created. Listen to what they had to say. 
Those are really gorgeous. Yeah, so uh, hard to believe that's mucus. <laughs> yeah, it's on the couch as well. Oh, urine. Uh, yeah, urine. And which urine. Is a, yeah. Which is a brown spot you kind of guess what that is. Yep. <laughs> so, like, when uh, COVID happens, the caves were closed down. And after, like, the first was back, some of those alarms were about 1.5 meters long. Oh, wow. So, yeah. Because we weren't coming past the running in. So yeah. Yeah, so there was less airflow so they could grow longer. Because uh, the shorter they are, the more airflow comes past. And, yeah. I think I wouldn't, I don't know if they're endangered, but impacting them, I could say it's us. Yeah. Because our breath and our speed walking past those lines are tangling them, and if they don't have any lines, they don't really survive. So I wouldn't say endangered, but um, I would say something that affects them is us, but also how much rain comes in, especially in here. If the rain gets too high, all the low winds wash away. Um, so I think the biggest problem is probably us in a way. Okay. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's we're the biggest predators, because uh, there's no bats in here because there's not enough food from in there. They live in the bush outside, as there's berries, more insects. The only critters to the bones is us, and maybe some spiders or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. you've got like a wetter, it's like a big cicada, I don't know, really okay. but they don't really go near the bones, I think. Yes, yeah. When the lions do tangle, they have to fix them, that takes energy, and they can die of exhaustion from just rebuilding them all the time, so yeah. And the adult larvae, do they get caught in their own, um, like, I mean, the adult flies. They can. They can, because they don't have to blow anymore as they're adult fly. So they can fly into them, and if they're not strong enough, they can they'll just suck them up in the glow and just eat them. Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> we've, watched, we've had our lives on the, uh, on the lines, we've had a moth come up, and they get stuck in there, they're trying so hard to get out. And then you see this glow, and they have like a mucus strip, and slide across the wall. Pull that line up, and we've actually got to try and eat it. Seriously? Yeah. We, uh, me and Alana, we need to know. I've seen it twice. It doesn't happen. That's right. So one of the things I wasn't prepared for was how incredibly moved I was by how quiet it was in the cave and how absolutely beautiful the glowworms were. As you look at the glowworms from the ceiling up above you and you're studying them, constellations begin to form in your mind. You know, I know the scientific explanation for this, but the yeah. bioluminescence is just stunning. Yeah. It's yeah. almost like looking at constellations in the sky. Yeah. It looks like the stars are messed up. Kind of makes you wonder how those early stories came about, like people saw the stars and made up the stories like I want to do about the glowworms. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what color do you see actually? Do you see like green or like bluish? I can see a little bit of, it, it's kind of a white blue. Yeah, yeah. And then a little bit of sort of a green off to the side in my, my vision. Yeah. And some of them are definitely brighter than others. Yeah, so uh, the reason for that is, the older they are, the brighter they glow, or the hungrier they are, the oh. brighter they glow. So, yeah. so they glow because they're brighter? Or like the if they're hungry, they yeah, grow brighter? Or they're older, yeah. So it's a way to say, come in, it's sort of yeah. like a neon sign, come and eat here. Yeah, exactly. I'm the brightest, you know, so they attract more. Oh, that's interesting. Nature is fascinating. Yeah, it really is. It really is. What was your reaction the first time you ever saw these? 
I was surprised that after the glow was the only part of like the glow, I thought they were really small, but yeah, they actually like sort of wounds, yeah. Oh, yeah, I was amazing. Like the formations as well, the first line. Crazy. So now that you've met the glowworms, let's learn a little bit more about the cave where we first saw them. So now that you've met the glowworms, on the way here. So um, the, the first people to discover this cave was about three to four hundred years ago. It was a tribe, and the leader was called Tani Tinero the first, and they came over from Carthia. And they, they came over from Carthia to just, just conquer more land. So they stopped in the Ruakuri Reserve, just... In the bush somewhere, yeah. And uh, so they just settled there for the night and he uh, told his some of his tribe members to go out hunting to get all fueled up for the next battle. Now uh, one of them uh, caught some kiridu, which is uh, New Zealand native pigeons. And as he was walking back, he uh, attracted a pack of dogs, which is quite rare in New Zealand, as they're not native here. They were brought over by Polynesian settlers, Māori people. So it was quite a big thing to find dogs. So they uh, attacked him, so he just dropped the birds and ran back to uh, his tribe. And then he uh, told his leader, and they got a bigger hunting party, and they came back and uh, said anything for the dogs, but they were used. Uh, so the meat was used for food, the bones, jewellery, and weapons, and the fur was made into a cloak for the leader, Tani Tereru. So, yeah. um, so when they came back to the dogs, they, they actually discovered the cave, and that's why the name Uruakuri stands for Den of Dogs. Oh. Yeah, so it's the new meaning behind the name, any name there. And uh, see, after that, uh, Tane Tenero and his tribe never lost another battle. So they were quite well known in the Waikato district. That was the first discovery of the cave, but they never went inside the cave. Okay. And then uh, when he died, he was laid to rest at the head of the cave with 12 other people. So yeah, that's why it's a sacred burial site. Yeah. Sweet. And if you guys follow me. The first person to actually go inside the cave was James Holden in 1904 as he won the land above in the gullet, so he found the cave and so exploring. That's really cool. Yeah. And how long has it been open to the public? So James Holden had the land from 19, the cave in gullet in 1904, and that same year he found the cave and started running tours in 1904 to 1906. But then the government saw the potential in tourism. And uh, the Waitama regions, especially with the Global and Cave as well, and they uh, try to buy the whole family out and the uh, people owning the Globins, but they refused. And then they went back to Parliament, made some legislations up, and pretty much took it, took the caves off the Holdens. And they had the caves until 1906 to 1988. Uh, the grandson, Jimmy Holden, in the 1980s, he uh, got a land surveyor. So I uh, surveyed the caves to see how much was actually underneath their land, and they found it was 80% underneath their land. So they got some lawyers involved, found an old Roman law saying, you own everything to the heavens above, to the centre of the earth. So yeah, they got the cave, that's the cave back, 1988. So uh, Jimmy Holden uh, put the sign of trespassing out by the main entrance, now it's been moved over here, so that's the original sign. So yeah, from 1988, we uh, started running, uh, black, two brothers came over to Jimmy Holland to start doing some tours for you, black boy rafting, tubing tours with the first tours. And their uh, walking tours were stopped until 1988 to 2005 when they made this. Yeah. In addition to the glowworms, our tour also included a look at 
the rock formations within the cave. And so in this next section, you have a special treat as my niece Alice, who is traveling with us, gives us a look at stalactites and stalagmites. And no, the difference between them is not just the letter T. Uh, Alice, can you tell me the difference between stalactites and stalagmites? So stalagmites might grow up to the ceiling, and stalactites are tight to the ceiling. So if I'm looking at the cave, are the stalactites hanging down and the stalagmites are going up? All right. And when they meet together, what do we call that? A pillar or a column. Yeah, curtains. Other names for them as well, bacon, lasagna sheets, angel wings, elephant ears. <laughs> it's quite a lot of them. So uh, how those are formed, if you look up, the ceiling's in like an A shape. So instead of the water trickling straight down, it runs along the wall. See? It just builds up over time. And these waves at the bottom are formed from the airflow just moving the water a little bit more. How many years would it take for... This one. This one to form. So this one takes about four to five four to five hundred years ago cubic centimeter as it runs along the wall. So yeah, it takes a bit longer than the normal stalactites and stalagmites. Wow. It's beautiful. And now do you guys see let me find some you see that little like like the popcorn looking stuff, the real rough uh-huh. rough stuff? That is called cave coral or cave popcorn. That is from the water being evaporated from airflow. Okay. So they yeah, hot tip if you're in a cave. If there's a lot of cave popcorn, you're close to an entrance or an exit. Oh, so, that's good to know. Yeah. So if you get lost, look. There's some fossils there. There's more shell fossils in the mine. Mm-hmm. And I've got some other ones to show you. So this is just a uh, piece of formation. You can touch this one. I'm not going to charge you guys $10,000, <laughs> I promise. See, this is just a broken off one, but they've found that uh, slip behind us. So, yeah, pretty cool. It looks like a salt lamp. Yeah. yeah. Translucent, right? Yeah. Translucent. And over here we have a oyster This is about 30 million years old as well. And those holes where you guys can see in it, that was a parasite with eight bees to extinct. So they don't, they don't come this big anymore. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah, because these are massive. Yeah. Massive. So, yeah. Wow. And uh, do you guys know what a moa bird is by any chance? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so it's just, yeah, big, uh, what do they call it again? Yeah. Big femur bone. Yeah, so, so this was the femur bone. Oh, wow. So, these went extinct about 700 to 800 years ago. So, hmm. yeah, they're incredible birds. Yeah. They're quite big. Yeah, really uh, t- this one would have been about two and a half meters. So yeah, the biggest meters. ones could be about four and a half meters. Yeah, very so huge. Used to hunt us. <laughs> yeah. We saw a skeleton of one in Auckland. Um, uh, it was super tall, like probably as tall as from here to up at the top yeah, of that cave. That's yeah. how they died in here, unfortunately. Yeah, and it yeah, made me believe big. in dinosaurs, too, and that whole <laughs> connection between dinosaurs and birds. It's cool when you Same with chickens, eh? Yes. Dinosaurs. Um, when you have a kid who's really interested in dinosaurs, we can show them things which are as old as dinosaurs, like that oyster. Yeah. There's like a whalebone in this cave. Um, there's a few in this cave, and you can be like, that's a dinosaur. Wow. 
Hey, early childhood and elementary school teachers and librarians, are you looking for ways to spice up your curriculum, build connections with engaged STEAM learners, and introduce multicultural versions of fairy tales and folk literature? If so, head over to drdianadventures.com and check out our on-demand virtual course. Beyond Ever After STEAM on-demand virtual course allows you to work at your own pace and learn how to build these STEM STEAM connections through multicultural fairy tales and folk literature. You'll receive professional development credits after you complete this high-energy three-hour on-demand course produced with Steve Spangler, Inc. As a bonus, you're going to receive a PDF that's filled with curriculum connections and program ideas you can put to work immediately in your early childhood, elementary, or library setting. Discounts are available for group purchases, plus you get special pricing when you purchase it as part of a regular professional development workshop. So head on over to drdianadventures.com and get started on your own Beyond Ever After experience. And I'd be remiss without introducing you to the tour guides who provided such wonderful information about the glowworms and the rocks of the Ruakuri Cave. So without further ado, let's meet them and get to know them a little bit better. So you get first. Hey, my name is Ruben. I've been working for like a week and a half now, and I live about half an hour away from here. So. And how did you um, become fascinated with glowworms and caves? Uh, so last year, the first school trip, now the Ridge Class, we came here on this little trip just to venture the cave on a lever bit tool, so rafting tool. And then afterwards, they said you can come in for work experience and maybe get a job. So, so here you are. Yeah, here I am. All right. Um, hello, my name's Avery. I've been here for just under three months, maybe two months. And I live about 10 minutes away. And same opportunity, I just came on a school trip and they offered us work experience. Yeah, that's about it. And what? Who are you and uh, how long have you worked here? So my name is Kaiser J. Takamawa and I've been working here for about two months, two, three months-ish. Yeah, just end up working over here now. And what's the most interesting part about getting to work in a cave every day? A lot of things, actually. The people and, um, well, just seeing the cave in general never really gets up too old. It's quite lovely. And what do you think of the glowworms? Well... It's it's mixed. Like just looking at them, they they're cool. But when you actually go deeper into uh, what they actually are, it's, it's a bit um, yeah, unsettling. <laughs> it's, a, it's a little bit uh, disgusting. Not but... caviar. Yeah. What's the most um, fascinating thing about working in the caves? Um, I think. What's the most um, fascinating thing about working in the caves? Um, I think it's. Not everyone gets to see this every day. It's like a real cool office to work in. Um, no one gets to see glowworms every day, so I think it's just something special, like something different. Yeah. yeah, I've been traveling the world, and I was lucky enough to get to go down into a volcano in Iceland. They have a dormant volcano, and it's the only one in the world where... you No, it's a different one, Dad. And it's the only one in the world where it's like a window-washing rig, and you go down into the, um, into the cone. Yeah. And so I'm always fascinated by sort of caves and experiences yeah, yeah. that allow people to come a step closer to understanding how the world around us yeah. works. And this, yeah, this job is really cool because you see people, different types of people every single day. So it's, it's always interesting. Well, great. Yeah, you get to see a cave for free, you know. Exactly. <laughs> and it also helps with um, 
working as a tour guide, you get to deal with other nationalities that really understand. Um, even on this tour, I've had someone who was deaf. We usually give them something to read, but they didn't understand English. So, um, yeah, I made it work, and they, they really like the tour, but it's just understanding people's circumstances. And so what's cool about it as well is public speaking. So me and Reuben are his students at our school next well, this year. Um, so like prefix, and so this kind of helps with that in a way. Prefix like Harry Potter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't really want that, so I don't really know. Maybe. And what are you guys hoping to do after school? So I'm not very sure yet, so I'll probably come back in next summer and probably take a gap and travel the world and yeah, see what I want to do for this month. Yeah. It's probably about the same as me. Um, pretty much come back next summer, earn a bit of a living, save up, and decide what I want to do as well. So, yeah. <laughs> and if you don't mind my asking, how old are you? Um, I'm 17 and I'm 16. Well, you guys are doing an amazing job of giving this tour, so thank you. Yeah, Wait a minute, Ben. What's your favorite old legend to share? Oh, oh, what is my favorite? <laughs> <laughs> oh, to be honest, I'm not actually too sure. I just like um, telling the stories that I've been told. So tell us one of those stories. All right. So we had one of the electricians working in the Ghost Passage, and they got to a point they happened to look up, and there was a dark, shadowy figure just crouched down watching them. So it was, yeah, interesting to hear. And, um, I mean, I've had my fair share of experiences myself. Well, only one or two, but they were interesting. And, Xavier, this was after you got signed off, by the way. It was weird, but yeah. So there are presences <laughs> in the caves? Um, well, it's either the guides playing around with other guides, or it could be. Who knows? Interesting. <laughs>